0: Hello, and thanks for listening to this podcast. My name is Karen Killalee. I am a partner and head of the employment team at Maples and Calder, Ireland, the Maples Group's law firm in Dublin. Before I dive into today's subject, just some housekeeping to cover off. If you are listening in from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource documents and speaker information in the description. And if you've clicked on the media player link sent to you via email, you can find this information in the notes section. So in today's episode, we look at a recent decision of the Irish Workplace Relations Commission, the decision of O'Brien versus Deadline Direct Limited. And in this case, the judge, who I will refer to as the adjudication officer or the AO uh, for the purpose of this podcast, awarded the complainant the maximum compensation available, which is two years remuneration. The AO found that the complainant had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace and the AO further decided that her employer had failed to prevent the sexual harassment from occurring and had failed to properly and appropriately respond to the original complaint of sexual harassment. As a result, the AO decided that she had been discriminated against on the of gender and awarded her two years' compensation. Looking at this decision, there are three or four key learning points, and as always, we aim to do a quick dive into our subject area and to take no more than about 15 minutes to do so. Let me talk a little bit about the background to this case. The employee, who I refer to as the complainant in this podcast, was employed as an administrator by her employer, the respondent, from about 2017 onwards. The situation described by the complainant, which formed the subject matter of the dispute and the claim, was that she was working in an open plan area on her employer's premises with other employees present. And she was engaged in wrapping delivery items. And what seems to have happened is a male colleague, came came up behind her, placed his hands on her waist and attempted to pull down her trousers, apparently as a joke. The colleague who did this is referred to as Mr. X in the decision. So I'm going to refer to him as Mr. X. And Mr. X then apparently proceeded to joke and mimic what he had just done to other female workers as well. The entire sequence was captured on CCTV and it was also witnessed by several colleagues who were in that open plan area that I just mentioned the claimant gave evidence that she was extremely upset and embarrassed by this conduct and she also described that she was quite upset by the fact that none of the colleagues who witnessed this conduct objected or said anything or assisted her in any shape or form we'll get into the detail of what happened next in a moment but the following summary of what happened next is relevant and is relevant to the decision of the adjudication officer so what happened next was the claimant left the room so she left the open plan area that she had been in. A little bit later that day, she reported the incident to her manager. Her manager explained that he was not immediately able to assist her, and he said that he, as opposed to the claimant, needed to report it to the CEO, I think in essence take further guidance from the CEO. The complainant then, I suppose in the absence of any other direction or assistance from her employer, Then had to head back upstairs and continue her work with Mr. X, who is the alleged perpetrator, sitting quite nearby to her. The next day, again, nothing had happened and the complainant this time took matters into her own hands, I guess, and phoned the CEO and she reported what had happened. Regrettably, it took the CEO, it appears, almost one week to respond to her in in writing. We don't have really much detail in the evidence in terms of what happened in that phone call. But what the AO did note was that it was pretty much close to a week before a letter issued from the company, essentially acknowledging that the complaint was serious and acknowledging that it would be fully investigated. The CEO committed to resolving matters within one week but unfortunately this did not happen and almost two weeks after the initial complaint a further holding letter was sent and it was pretty non-committal about resolution and next steps. On the 17th of June which is a about three weeks after the initial incident. The complainant visited her her GP and and she departed on certified sick leave. In the meantime, the employer appointed their external accountants, is is how they were described in the decision to investigate the matter. And over five weeks after the initial complaint of what is objectively a, a serious complaint of sexual harassment was filed, the complainant was finally invited by the investigator to an investigation Meeting Just to sort of set the scene here, it, during all of this time, the alleged perpetrator apparently remained in employment. The dignity at work policy, which would have educated the claimant on the policy and the procedures to follow, does not appear to have been furnished to her. She remained on sick leave for some of this time and certainly after the investigation began, with some discretionary sick pay provided to her. We're also told from the decision that the alleged perpetrator, Mr. X, resigned on the 21st of July. The complainant at that point remained out on sick leave and she did not resign. She was repeatedly invited to return to work, but she refused to do so on the basis that she didn't have faith that it would be a safe working environment. As a result, the investigation was discontinued post Mr X's resignation. The complainant, according to the decision, had also reported the matter to the police, to to the Gardaí. She gave evidence that she was continuing to receive cancelling after the incident. All of that factual background is relevant. Our own observations on this would be that the allegation of sexual harassment is certainly on the higher end of the scale and objectively is the type of complaint that an employer should really be responding to very swiftly and very carefully and very sensitively and above all, in accordance with the policy that the company has in order to guide the employer and in particular the managers on on how to respond. Having looked at the factual background in some detail, let's just recap for a moment on what the actual legal claim was. We've referred to it as a complaint of sexual harassment, but what does that actually mean. The complainant made a claim under the piece of Irish legislation, which governs redress and liability for discrimination, including sexual harassment. So it's a claim made under the Employment Equality Acts, 1998-2015. And the complainant alleged that she had suffered sexual harassment. As a corollary of that, her argument is that In essence, the circumstances of the harassment were such that the employer should reasonably have taken steps to prevent it, and the employer failed to do so. And as a result of that, the employer's sort of failure to prevent uh, the sexual harassment constituted discrimination against her on the grounds of gender. And to recap briefly from an Irish employment law perspective, sexual harassment means any form of unwanted verbal or non-verbal uh, conduct, physical conduct of a sexual nature, and, and in essence any such conduct which has the purpose or effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating or hostile or degrading or humiliating or offensive and environment uh, for that person, okay? So it's very much a a subjective uh, test and the intention of the person who is allegedly perpetrating the harassment is entirely irrelevant. That's what the claim is. So what is the defence? So the legal defence to a claim of sexual harassment under Irish employment law is that the employer took such steps as are reasonably practicable to prevent the harassment occurring. And if any discriminatory or less favourable treatment has occurred as a result of the harassment, to reverse the effects of that. So it's also important to note that once the complainant can prove on the balance of probabilities primary facts from which a presumption of discrimination can be raised, then the burden of proof shifts to the employer. So in other words, it it is a relatively low bar for the complainant to be able to shift the burden of proof over to the employer to in effect disprove that they failed to prevent the sexual harassment and the gender-based discrimination. So as you can imagine in this case, given the description of the alleged sexual assault and sexual harassment, given that there were several witnesses, given that there was CCTV evidence of what had happened, it was very easy for the complainant to shift that burden of proof over to the employer. And therefore, the employer was tasked with proving, if you like, that they had done nothing wrong. So we know the background facts. We know what her claim is, we know what the employer then has to do in order to successfully defend the claim, what happened. For the purpose of this podcast, I want to sort of highlight, I think, the features of this case where the adjudication officer expressed quite strong criticism because I think those are then helpful points for employers in Ireland who are looking to almost, if you like, learn from the mistakes of others. So I would probably highlight three or four points from this decision. The first learning point, which is key, is to ensure that as an employer in Ireland and very likely in many other jurisdictions as well, you respond appropriately, professionally, and swiftly to any complaint of sexual harassment so that you can demonstrate from the get-go that you have taken reasonably practical steps to try to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. Let's back up a little bit. This is a really serious complaint, and the fact pattern, as I mentioned earlier, places this at the higher end of serious sexual harassment, possibly criminal assault, And as we know, the complainant did report this matter to the police. This is a kind of an unusual case because there's no doubt that this occurred very frequently in our experience in sexual harassment cases. There are no witnesses. It's one person's word against another. By contrast, in this case, the incident was witnessed by several colleagues and it was caught on CCTV. So in some ways, the response pathway for the employer should have been quite clear but things went wrong from the outset. In this case, when the complainant reported the matter to her manager, the manager's response and the CEO's responses appeared to be, at least this is what the decision reveals to us, appear to have been slow and not very effective. Key learning point is that it is just really important that managers and those who are likely to be a point of contact for these types of complaints are familiar with the dignity at work or anti-harassment policy within the employer organisation. And importantly, that that policy has been reviewed in light of recent case law, legislation and so forth. And also helpfully have a statutory code of practice on harassment and sexual harassment, which was published by the Irish Human Rights Commission a couple of years ago. You'll find a copy of the Code of Practice in the resource section for this episode. I don't plan to go through the detail of that, but it's a really good starting point for employers who are looking to, you know, refresh their their policies and really truly understand their their obligations. So, in summary, employers must be able to rely on their managers and people leaders to be informed and educated so that they recognise a complaint of sexual harassment, so they appreciate the seriousness of it, and they appreciate the sensitivity of it, so that they are equipped to respond appropriately. And in particular, they're needs to be a focus on preventing any further harassment. Employers need to watch out for any penalization or retaliation against the employee. It's important to note that sometimes there can be a sense, I've certainly seen this in practice, that sometimes employers uh, can be frustrated with somebody who's making this sort of complaint. And, you know, that's pretty much an unforgivable error these days. It's really important that managers are equipped to connect the employee with the complaints procedures. They need to be accessible. And then obviously the investigation needs to start as swiftly as possible. It needs to be fair, it needs to be transparent. And if as an employer you have as part of your private medical insurance employee counselling, that should be offered up also. The second learning point I think from this, and, and this very much derives from some pretty sharp criticism that the adjudication officer expressed regarding the employer and and their policy. The second learning point is that it's not good enough to have a policy and for a couple of people to leaf through it or for it to sit in a desk. It needs to be effective and it needs to be accessible. In this case, the respondent employer argued that it had in fact taken all practicable steps to prevent the harassment. It argued that prior to the incident, it had effective policies and procedures. And it had an employee handbook which identified sexual harassment as unacceptable behaviour. It highlighted the fact that as soon as the complainant made them aware of the alleged assault, that a dignity at work policy statement expressing a commitment to providing a working environment free from harassment was pushed out to all employees. That wasn't good enough, though, from the adjudication officer's perspective. He didn't accept this evidence. And he found that the employer had not legally taken reasonable steps to prevent the harassment. And he made some observations which are certainly useful to reflect on. So the first observation was that the policy was not, in fact, a dignity at work policy, which complied with the code of practice that I mentioned a few moments ago. In fact, it was a type of grievance policy. It wasn't localized to Ireland. It looked like it had been taken from perhaps a UK company, a sister company, perhaps in England, and it referred to ACAS procedures and so forth. So it wasn't bespoken localized to Ireland, and that was a problem. The AO also noted that employees were not trained on the policy and in particular, managers were not trained. The complainant also gave evidence that she'd never been given a copy of the handbook. She'd never seen it and there was no documentary evidence to show that she had in fact received it. The AO was not particularly impressed by the pushing out of the mission statement after the fact, after the complaint, and he simply observed that that was not effective in preventing harassment and was of limited use. In this case, the AO specifically called out the absence of any documentary evidence indicating that the complainant had received the handbook, and despite oral evidence from the company to the effect that she had, the AO did not accept that and concluded that no preventative measures had been taken. So that was a pretty harsh position from the respondent employer's perspective. Another third learning point relates to more practical issues. And this is one thing that struck me when I read the decision first. It is quite extraordinary in some ways that the alleged perpetrator and the complainant wound up sitting in fairly close proximity. We're not sure for how long, but certainly in the immediate aftermath of this incident, and possibly for some weeks after that, up until when the complainant went on sick leave and then ultimately the alleged perpetrator, Mr. X, resigned. That's problematic Being on notice of this type of incident means that the employer has to give some consideration to how the parties are going to work together. What does that mean? It's not necessarily going to be a viable proposition for it to be business as usual. So an employer is going to need to consider the working arrangements. So can there be separation of the individuals? Can they work on different floors? Can somebody work remotely where the complaint relates to an allegation of assault, such as in this case, then the employer needs to give very serious consideration to suspension. And that's suspension of the alleged perpetrator, not the complainant. It's a serious consideration. Suspending a person is a has a very material impact, and it can damage their reputation. And of course, everybody's entitled to be presumed to be innocent until proven otherwise. So it needs a lot of careful consideration. But certainly, just allowing the parties to continue to work work in close proximity is not necessarily going to be a viable consideration. So do think about the practicalities of this. The final sort of learning point from this relates to the investigation and the the investigator and ensuring that the investigator, objectively speaking, looks like an appropriate appointment or an appropriate selection. So it's not an easy job these days to be an investigator at all. And it it really is, I suppose, strongly recommended that anybody who is called upon to investigate these types of incidents has experience and knowledge. They don't necessarily need to be a lawyer, but they certainly do need to have experience and, and know how to handle investigations. The evidence before the adjudication officer here was that the investigator who was appointed was an external accountant, so someone who had helped the business and, and presumably was a trusted advisor to the business. But unfortunately, as the investigator himself was not in a position to give evidence at the hearing, the AO in the absence of any evidence, did express some criticism of the way in which the employer selected the investigator. And the AO commented that the necessity to ensure that an investigator is experienced and trained is crucial. As I mentioned, it is difficult. It's not easy to be an investigator. And if the investigator had been in a position to give evidence, maybe he could have explained his credentials. But in any event, absent that evidence, the AO, again, was quite critical of the employer. And the AO noted that there was no evidence before him to suggest that the investigator had any expertise in these matters or had carried out similar investigations in the past. There are probably the three or four key learning points, just two other interesting points which kind of relate to how this matter was run before the Workplace Relations Commission. So the first one is, it's related to what I've just talked about, which is the absence of the investigator as a witness at the hearing. He was a key witness from the employer's perspective, but for whatever reason, he was not in a position to give evidence This isn't unusual. Cases are often heard a year or more after the incident happens. People are busy and lives move on. So it's important to be aware of this at the outset. It's important to be prepared for that. It's a good idea to take notes and prepare witness statements as close as possible to the occurrence of the incident in question. You can never obviously legislate for this and as I say, people's lives move on. But the absence of key witnesses certainly makes it very Difficult for parties to really advance their claim. And it's good just to remember that cases are very often won and lost before the Workplace Relations Commission on the basis of oral evidence. So that's the first piece. You need to keep in mind that you will need your witnesses down the road if a matter goes to hearing. The second piece that I would mention is in relation to the anonymization of the parties. It's quite common in sexual harassment cases for the names of the parties to be redacted on the basis that there are special circumstances which exist. And and usually that is at the application of the complainant. But ultimately, that is not always the case. And in this particular situation, the names of the parties were not redacted. So uh, from a reputational perspective for the employer, it's certainly not a happy place to be to have a decision with all of this detail and some fairly sharp criticism from the AO in relation to how this matter was handled. That's it. Four learning points and two other practical points related to how these matters are generally advanced when they move into the litigation phase. For now, thank you for listening to the Maples Group Employment Law podcast. If you have any questions or queries on any of the points covered today or on Irish employment law issues in general, please do get in touch with us. Thanks for listening and subscribing.